as we come back to our series on Through the Bible, book by book, we've come to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. I hope you can find it all right. It's the last of the first five books of the Bible. If you go to Numbers and turn right, you'll find Deuteronomy right on the corner. And uh, uh, this is the last book of the books of Moses. It's uh, very, it's very, um, uh, what shall I say, regarded as a, as a uh, mark of intelligence, or uh, it's somewhat the favorite pastime of scholars today to raise questions about whether Moses actually wrote the books of, that are ascribed to him or not. And, uh, uh, there are those who maintain that Moses really wasn't the writer of these books, that it has been made up, this collection has been made up from a number of uh, writers who wrote at various times, and someone, some unknown editor, has gone over all these ancient books and extracted uh, parts from them and put them together in a collection, and we now have nothing more than a collection of writings by unknown and... Uh, 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 writers that, whose names have been totally lost to us. And someone added the name Moses as the author. This is what's called the documentary theory of Scripture. And if any of you have, uh, are studying in comparative religion courses or any courses in, in high school or college that have to do with the Bible, you'll probably, very likely, be exposed to that theory. Now, unfortunately, it's a theory that has already been very well answered and exposed as false. And yet, amazingly enough, in many places, it's still being taught as though it were true. I remember Dr. Ironside telling me years ago of listening to an outstanding liberal speaker over at the University of Berkeley, who, uh, speaking to a group of young men, however, said something along this line. He said, young gentlemen... He said, I suppose I am regarded, at least in some circles, as somewhat of an authority on the uh, documentary hypothesis of the Old Testament in the books of the Pentateuch. And he said, I have had many questions raised uh, with me regarding the books of Moses, the so-called books of Moses. And he said, you know, there is so much being said today about the assured results of higher criticism. And the critics tell us that it's now an assured thing that Moses did not write the books that are ascribed to his name. But he said, I want to say this, that after having examined this whole evidence very, very carefully and worked in this field for many years, my conclusion is that if the, if the five books of Moses were not written by Moses, they must have been written by somebody else named Moses. <laughs> So uh, the uh, the uh, the ordinary and uh, uh, usual concept that these are the books of Moses is a very authentic one. Now the book of Deuteronomy is the last great sermon that Moses ever preached. A, it was preached by this great man of God just before his own death. It begins with a word about Moses, the fact that he delivered these words to Israel beyond the Jordan, in the wilderness, in the Arabah, uh, in a, a certain locality. And it closes with the account of the 
death and the burial of Moses. And it says that God ordered Moses to go up into the Mount Nebo and there look out over into the promised land, a land which he could not enter because of his of his uh, uh, misdeed uh, in the wilderness when he disobeyed God and instead of speaking to the rock, he struck it with a rod and brought forth water for the people. And as a result, he was not permitted to enter the land himself. But he saw the land. And he went up into the mountain with not a single uh, sign of, of uh, deterioration in his physical body. But there he died, and God buried him there, and no man knows where Moses is buried. This book closes with that thought. But before he went, he preached this tremendous message that we have recorded as the book of Deuteronomy. It's a great sermon, and it's a great encouragement to a preacher because it was a sermon that must have been at least two hours long in its delivery. It takes that long to read it alone. Perhaps it took three hours to deliver it. And yet the people of Israel listened to him, probably standing all the time. So feel, uh, don't feel sorry for yourselves tonight if you are seated in comfort and have to listen to me for a half hour or 35 minutes. Uh, I'll never get as long-winded as Moses. Now, this message was delivered at the end of 40 years of wandering in the wilderness to a new generation of people who were camped just across the Jordan River, uh, not far from the city of Jericho, ready to enter the land. They were on the edge of the land, and the message is all looking to the life that would be theirs when they enter into the land. It's delivered in view of the entrance of Israel into the land. They're through with the wilderness and they're ready for the land. Now, if you followed along in this series enough already, you know that these five books of Moses are what we might call God's visual aid, by which we have visibly demonstrated to us what is happening in our own spiritual life. That as God uh, uh, leads the people of Israel out of Egypt, through the wilderness, into the land of Canaan, they reproduce in all their journey the exact problems and obstacles. They encounter the same enemies. They win the same victories that are possible to us and that are that we will be encountering all through the journey of our spiritual life from the world and its ways before we were a Christian. With its slavery and its bondage depicted by Israel in the, in the bondage and slavery of Egypt, through the whole of the barren wilderness, and I trust it will not be 40 years long for you, into the land of Canaan, the land flowing with milk and honey, the land of abundance of supply, the land where uh, Israel was, was or could have been at least a continual victor over all their enemies. And all this is God's way of picturing to us what's happening in our own lives. Now, if you read your Old Testament with that key in hand, it becomes simply a luminous book. Every story in it becomes a, a has direct relationship to you. And there's marvelous lessons taught in this book. I have learned to, I've come to see in my own experience that I could not, and I don't think anyone can understand the mighty truths that are declared in the Old Testament until we see them visibly demonstrated in the Old. And it's only as these stories from the Old Testament come to life for us 
and we see how they apply to our own experience that uh, the New Testament truths, which are so familiar to our ears, become living, vibrant, vital experiences with us. Now, the book falls into three divisions. And these three divisions uh, uh, are, are the normal divisions of Moses' great sermon. Every good preacher has three points in his message. And Moses was the first of this series. The first four chapters occupy a review of God's love and care of Israel in the wilderness and uh, how he watched over them. Here are the people standing on the edge of the land. Many of them had only gone through part of the wilderness journey because they were but children when Israel 40 years before had stood at Kadesh Barnea and had refused to enter into the land. And uh, the whole of the wilderness wanderings occupying 40 years took place while some of these were growing up. Many of them are just young men and women, uh, 20, 30 years of age. And they need to be reminded of what God has done in in the wilderness journeys. And so uh, Moses' first task is to go back over the the, uh, 40 years in the wilderness and to recite to them the wonderful love and care, how God watched over them, how he led them by the way, how the pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day guided them through this trackless, howling desert, how he brought water from the rock when they came into a vast and and waterless area where there was nothing there at all and over two million people were dependent upon the land and how God through Moses brought water from the rock to to slake their thirst, how he delivered them from their enemies again and again, and how he fed them with manna without fail. Imagine it. Forty years of living on nothing but manna. Every day it fell from heaven without fail, except on the sixth day, the seventh day, rather, when they were expected, of course, to carry over the food from the sixth day's supply. But for forty years God fed over two million people Every day with manna falling from heaven. What a marvelous evidence of his love and his concern for this people. And then the second division uh, is a great resume of the law. And here you have the Ten Commandments appearing for the second time in the Bible. Beginning with chapter 5 through chapter 27, you have the law given again. The Ten Commandments, the setting aside of the cities of refuge for those who who uh, slew uh, a man or an individual unknowingly, unwittingly, not deliberately, and the laws on divorce and on unfaithfulness, and the penalty that was extracted if there were those who were caught in some, uh, uh, some suspicious situation, the penalty for idolatry and for sorcery, the warnings of God against falling into the terrible, terrible deeds of the of the tribes that then inhabited the land. You never can read these books of Moses without understanding that the land into which these people were coming was a land that was possessed by people who were utterly given over to lewd and obscene practices. And the book of Deuteronomy is a mighty revelation that God was expecting his people to live in the midst of a sex-saturated society. 
among uh, around people at least who had who had completely given themselves over to the most vile practices and uh, i think this is uh, a great encouraging thing to us who are being asked more and more today to live in just such a society and yet god expected his people to keep themselves completely from these things and to be a holy people in the midst of a sex mad uh, uh in the midst of sex mad nations and then there's a recapitulation of the sanitary laws all of these things which are found also largely in the book of leviticus that's the second division the third division of the book is a mighty revelation of the future both in terms of blessing and of cursing upon Israel. The 28th chapter, beginning with chapter 27 and uh, through chapter 34, you have this last division. The 28th chapter of this book is one of the most amazing prophecies ever recorded in the Bible. I don't know if you're familiar with this. Most of us know Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 and some of these other great prophecies. But this is a prophetic passage uh, fully as detailed and remarkable in its detail as any other prophecy in Scripture. It is a prediction uh, of the entire history of the Jewish nation, of the Jewish people, I should say, even after the time when they ceased to be a nation, but were scattered out in the face of the earth. And you can find the entire record of all that Israel has gone through these long, long centuries here in this 28th chapter of Deuteronomy. There's a prediction, first, of the Babylonian dispersion, how they would fail to heed the prophets, and how they would turn to other gods, and God would send them out into Babylon. And this happened, as you know, under Nebuchadnezzar. And then there's a, pro uh, a prediction of their return into the land, and then how again, after centuries, they would be, uh, they would fall again into terrible sin. Uh, the sin, of course, of rejecting the Messiah, and a strange nation would come in from the West, the Romans, who would be uh, uh, hard and cruel people, and they would they would burn the cities and destroy the inhabitants and disperse them again unto the ends of the earth, and Israel would wander for many many centuries as a people without a land, but God would at last gather them back again into the land. And there would be an ultimate restoration. All of this is precisely predicted in the 28th chapter of Deuteronomy. And uh, then there are also predicted blessings for obedience of the people, wonderful blessings, and curses that would come upon them if they disobeyed the word of God. Now, the key to this book is the name of the book. Its name, Deuteronomy, means the second law. The second law. Deuteronomy. The first giving of the law, of course, was in the book of Exodus, where you have the Ten Commandments in the 20th chapter. Why was it necessary for the Holy Spirit to give the law twice? Why do you find the Ten Commandments once in Exodus, again in Deuteronomy, the laws for all the sanitary regulations of the people and the dietary regulations and all these other things are reproduced again in Deuteronomy? Why? Why the law twice? Well, we learn from the book of Romans in the New Testament that the law of God has two functions. Just uh, keep your hat pin there in Deuteronomy 
for a while and turn over to Romans, will you? The seventh chapter, for uh, the first chapter for a moment. And you'll notice that the law is brought in twice in Paul's great argument in Romans. It's introduced to us first in the first chapter, and then again in the seventh. And in the first chapter, verse uh, 19, or the third chapter, I beg your pardon, verse 19, you have a specific statement of what the law was designed to do. Most of us, as we listen, uh, hear the Ten Commandments, we, we think that God gave the law unto the human race in order to keep us from doing wrong and to make us do good. And if you ask the man on the street what the purpose of the Ten Commandments were, this is what he would say. It's to keep us from doing wrong. But this is not the reason the law was given. God never in, uh, dreamed for a moment that the giving of the law would keep anybody from doing anything wrong. The, the reason the law was given is in verse 19 of chapter 3 of Romans. What does it say? Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Why? So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. That's the reason why the law was given in the first place. It was given to reveal to man the sinfulness of what he does. You know, there's an amazing faculty about human hearts. We never think that what we do is wrong. It's always what the other fellow does that's wrong, isn't it? <laughs> isn't it unusual? Isn't it remarkable, the different names that we have? We have a whole uh, set of names, a whole category of names that we use to apply to things that we do, and quite a different set that we use to apply to what everybody else does. Others have prejudices. We have convictions, don't we? Yes. Others are stingy. We're very thrifty. Others try to keep up with the Joneses. We simply uh, are trying to get ahead. And so it goes, all the way down the line. Now, what's the law do? Well, the law comes in and applies the same term to everybody alike. And the law says, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not covet, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy soul and all thy strength, and have no other gods. And the law is absolutely impartial in its application. And when man is confronted with the law of God, he can no longer deceive himself. He has to admit that what he does is wrong. And God said that the law was given that every mouth may be stopped. And there's nobody that dares to stand up to God and say, well, others may be wrong, but right here you've got someone who lives a good, clean, moral life. Because the law says no. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the cross, therefore, the cross of Jesus Christ, becomes the answer to what man did. What he did on the cross is the answer to what we have done. He bore our sins in his own body on the tree. And that's what's set forth so beautifully in, uh, the, uh, in, in the book of Exodus, in the sacrifices, book of Exodus and Leviticus, in the sacrifices of the lamb and the goat and the, and the ox and the calf and the other animals 
that are a picture of the blood of Jesus Christ shed for the transgressions, for the sins of man, what we have done. And there is no way of sinful man dealing with a holy God except as some some payment, some ransom, some uh, some uh, justification is rendered to him for the sins of man. And it's the law that makes us aware that we need that. Oh, but the law comes in again then in Romans 7. You'd, once our sins were settled, isn't that enough? Once we discovered that the law has made us realize that we have all done that which is wrong in God's sight and we're guilty before him, isn't that enough? No, there's another purpose of the law. In verse 7 of Romans 7, Paul says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I should not have known sin. Not sins here, but sin. Not what I've done, but what I am. If it hadn't been for the law, I would not have known that I am under the grip and in, under the influence of an alien satanic philosophy which is in itself sin. If the law had not said, I should not have known what it is to covet. If the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, finding opportunity in the commandment, wrought in me all kinds of covetousness. And then look at verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? That is, was it the law that did this? No, by no means. It was sin, working death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment, through the commandment, might become sinful beyond measure. That is, not only do I realize then that I have done things that have merited the just uh, wrath of God upon me, that I am a sinner indeed, and have received the cross of Jesus Christ as having paid the price and settled the debt of my sins. But also it's through the law that I understand that there's some principle at work in me, which I would never have known otherwise, which has so permeated and affected me that not only do I do things that are wrong, but what I am is wrong in God's sight. What I am, not what I've done only, but what I am. And the answer to this, I discover from the book of Romans, is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. That he died to pay for my sins. And as Paul puts it in Romans 5 verse 10, if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, much more than being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And I learned that it's the presence of a living Savior within my heart, who dwells within me, who makes available to, available to me everything that he is, that is the answer to what I am. I need what he did because of what I've done, but I need what he is because of what I am. And this is what the book of Deuteronomy tells us and illustrates for us. For if you read carefully through this book, you will find that there are two themes that run through the entire book that you do not find in, Deuteron in Leviticus or in Exodus. Let's turn back to the book of Deuteronomy again for a moment. 
And you'll discover here the two great themes that run all through this book like two unbroken threads is the theme of man's utter weakness, his inability to do anything. Even though he's cleansed, he still cannot in himself please God. Nothing he can do in himself. His sincere, dedicated efforts to please God are not availing. The mind of the flesh cannot please God, as Paul puts it. And also, right with this, is another wonderful parallel theme, the theme of God's abiding presence. That God himself is the answer to the demands of the law in us. That what God demands of us, he himself uh, takes up residence within us in order that he might meet that demands in himself. That he provides the answer as well. What he demands of us, he himself supplies. Now, notice this. Let me turn to you to a few passages, and you can see this yourself. Look at chapter 6 in, in Deuteronomy. Chapter 6, verse uh, 20. You have the theme of man's weakness here. Uh, Moses said, When your son asks you in time to come, what's the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the ordinances which the Lord our God has commanded you? Why do you do these things? Why do you go through all these ceremonies? Why do you kill these lambs and and, uh, these uh, goats and these sheep? And why do you go up to the tabernacle? And what is all this about? What's the purpose of it? When your son asks you that, what do you say? Well, you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. That's where we begin. That's what we are. We're no better than that. We're slaves, Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in to the land. He brought us out, that he might bring us in to the land. And all these are symbols by which God is teaching us what it takes to get us out of Egypt and into the land. That was the explanation they were to make. Look at chapter 7, verse 6. For you are a people, Moses said, holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession, where he dwells. A people for his own possession, where he himself will dwell. Out of all the peoples that are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love upon you and chose you, for you were the fewest of peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath which he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Wasn't anything in you. You have nothing, you see. It was God that did it, not man. Look at chapter 9, verse 4. Do Do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust out your enemies from before you, It is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out from before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart. Man never has righteousness in himself. 
Never. Not because of this are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you, and that he may confirm the word which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. Look at chapter 29, clear over to the end of the chapter, uh, of the book, verse 16. You know, Moses said, how we dwelt in the land of Egypt, and how we came through the midst of the nations through which you passed, and you've seen their detestable things, their idols of wood and stone, of silver and gold, which were among them. Beware, lest there be among you a man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away this day from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations, lest there be among you, after forty years of training in the wilderness, he said, watch out, you never get to the place where you stand on your own, never, beware, beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit, one who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. Beware. This would lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. The Lord would not pardon him, but rather the anger of the Lord, and his jealousy would smoke against that man. And the curses written in this book would settle upon him, and the Lord would blot out his name from under heaven. You see, man never never gets to stand in his own strength. God never makes us so strong that we never need him, ever. We're continually dependent upon him. This is the great lesson taught in this book, just as it's taught in Romans 5, 6, and 7. And with that is the theme of God's abiding presence as the strength of the believer. Look at chapter 7 again, verse 17. If you say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. When you're up against problems in life, difficulties, giants, trials, and you say to yourself, I don't have any strength in myself, I can't do this, what should you remember? That God does it. God's in you. God's there to meet that problem. God is there for living. He's there for the problems of your life. Remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt, the great trials which your eyes saw, the signs, the wonders, the mighty hand and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. So will the Lord your God do to all peoples of whom you are afraid. Moreover, the Lord your God will send hornets among them until those who are left and hide themselves from you are destroyed. You shall not be in dread of them, for the Lord your God is in the midst of you, a great and terrible God. What an event. Look at chapter 8, verse 3. And he humbled you, and he let you hunger, and he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but that man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Does that sound familiar to you? 
Those were the very words that Jesus used in the wilderness when he explained to the devil who came to tempt him why he did not, would not, and even could not, in that ultimate sense of, of uh, obedience, why he would not turn the stones into bread. He said, you don't understand how I live. I don't live by remarkable signs that I do to make everybody look up and with wonder and amazement. Man doesn't live that way. Man lives not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. What God is in me, that's what makes me strong. Look at chapter 14. Chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. You are the sons of the Lord your God. Therefore you shall not cut yourselves or make any baldness on your foreheads for the dead, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his own possession, where he lives, where he dwells, out of all the peoples that are on the face of the earth. Chapter 23, 12, verse 12. You shall, this, by the way, is right in the midst of the sanitary regulations for Israel. You'll understand when I read this, why I read it, despite the fact that it speaks of that which is rather unsavory. But he's giving orders to the people as to the, governing the very uttermost limits of their lives in everything they do. He says, you shall have a place outside the camp, and you shall go out to it, and you shall have a stick with your weapons, and when you sit down outside, you shall dig a hole with it and turn back and cover up your excrement. Why? Because the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to save you and to give up your enemies before you. Therefore, your camp must be holy, that you he may not see anything indecent among you and turn away from you. The presence of a living God is the secret of a of a satisfying life. And then the most remarkable passage in many ways in all the Bible, I think, chapter thirty, you have in this book a marvelous explanation of the dynamic that keeps the law what it is that makes it possible to obey the law, even here in Deuteronomy. In uh, the first part of this chapter, Moses is recounting the law again, warning the people and of the blessings and telling of the blessings that will come and the cursings if they disobey. And in verse 11, he says, For this commandment, which I command you this day, is not too hard for you. Everyone who falls short says, it's no use, the law is just too hard for me, I can't do that. He says, it's not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will go up for us to heaven and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you would say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? That is, who can bring this near to us so that it comes into our very lives? Now listen to what he said. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. What's that? An indwelling life, isn't it? And these very words are picked up by the Apostle Paul in Romans 10. And in Romans 10, he says about the two givings of the law, verse 5, 
Moses writes, that is in Exodus, concerning the first law, Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on the law shall live by it. But Israel found it utterly impossible to live by the law on that basis. Now Paul says, but the righteousness based on faith, and this, by the way, is exactly from the same writer, from Moses. He's quoting now from Moses again, this time in Deuteronomy. The righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, on your lips, and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. Because if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord, and believe that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There it is. The two great things, you see. The death of the Lord Jesus and the raising again from the dead, making his life available to us. And this is what Paul calls in chapter 8, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, fulfilling by another principle the righteousness which the law demands. And if we walk in the spirit, if we walk in a continual recognition that he is in us, ready to be in us, to do everything that needs to be done, and we're ready to to turn aside gladly and willingly from every fulfilling of the flesh. We reject that as having been cursed of God. We will not permit something to live that God says has no right to live in our life. Then we're able to turn to him in the fullness of expectation and say, Lord Jesus, be in me all that I need. And step out on that and we fulfill the righteousness that the law requires. You know that old illustration of the plane, how the law of gravity continually holds us to our seats, holds us down. But there is a law of aerodynamics by which we can overcome the law of gravity. It doesn't cancel it out, it simply overcomes it. And you step into a plane, and you sit down, and do you have to cling to your seat? Do you have to hang on to the sides of the plane in order to stay aloft once you're in the air? No, no. You just rest on the fact that there's a law at work that's keeping you from fulfilling the law of gravity. Now, if you ever get to the place where you think you've got it learned, and you say to the stewardess, would you open the door, please? I think I'll go on by myself. You know what that's called? That's called jumping to a conclusion. That's the end right there. You'll never make it. You'll never make it. But in this quiet continual, confident resting that God himself is the ample provision of all that he requires from us, there is the ability to fulfill the righteousness which the law demands. And that's what the book of Deuteronomy teaches. And therefore, the next book, and the only possible book that could follow this, is the book of Joshua, where you have Joshua leading the people into the land. They've learned the principle at least in shadow, of how to live in the land. And Joshua takes us into that. So we bow together in prayer. Our Father, what marvelous truth thou hast unfolded to us and written for us in this great word. What feeble instruments we are in apprehending it. 
But teach us, Lord, teach us by thy Holy Spirit. Teach us young and old alike. Teach us to be dissatisfied with life in the wilderness. Lord, make us to be fed up with this continual barrenness, this empty, frustrating experience of trying to do something on our own and struggling and failing all the time. Make us a desperately ready, Lord, to, to listen, to heed, to hear this marvelous delivering word, how we can be set free from this wretched man and made to walk in the fullness of the Spirit so that the righteousness which the law demands might be fulfilled in us, not by us, but by the Lord Jesus in his blessed risen life working through us. For we pray in his name. Amen.